0: We've got here is failure to communicate. And it get hot. I got a lot of it. I got hairy legs that turn that 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 that, that turn about uh, uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in and pull and rub my leg down, so it was straight. And then watch the hair come back up again. Hey, look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap with your host, Mike Paul. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Hey guys, welcome back to
1: the Mike Paul cast. I am your host, Mike Paul. Uh, today I got a pretty interesting episode. This is something that um, I really wanted to shed some light on and, and, and bring to um, the attention of my listeners. Uh, it's the concept of infinite banking. This is something I had heard about uh, just on a couple different podcasts and read about online, but never really took the time to investigate and find out what it was all about. So my my brother, Nick, uh, who's been on a couple episodes now, you're probably familiar with him. He's once again on this episode, and he brought with him uh, his friend, who's actually become a a friend of mine now, uh, Tom Holder. Uh, Tom was actually a professional... um, fighter uh he fought in bellator uh mma fighting and him and nick met during uh that one of their jiu-jitsu uh grappling sessions or whatever they call them i apologize i'm the only guy here that doesn't do jiu-jitsu i think it's really cool just not hit, <laughs> never done it um but anyways tom is both very talented uh as a fighter and as a as an intellectual he's a very intelligent guy and you know the first time i met him i was like okay, this is one of those guys that you want to take some notes on, and he's, uh, he's got something figured out that I, that, <laughs> that I don't. So definitely uh, wanted to find out what he had to tell me and teach me. And we got on the topic of infinite banking. Um, it's a very fascinating topic. Uh, and then the conversation, after he explains what that is, kind of uh, went pretty deep after that uh, to topics I didn't expect. And, and you'll see that when you listen through to the back half of the episode. But uh, I think this is a very good conversation, and I think it can be very helpful to a lot of people uh, and potentially life-changing if you follow both Tom's investment advice and his, um, his philosophical advice too. Also, if you guys have not done it yet, please head over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. Let me know what you think. Let me know about any guests that you want to have on the show, um, or you can email me at Paulcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to support the show, you can go down to the show notes and click a link in the description to tip one time or monthly. That'll help with our advertising and equipment costs to help improve the show going forward. So without further ado, please welcome my brother, Nick Paul, as well as our friend, Thomas Holder. All right, Tom, Nick, welcome to the show. How are you guys doing today? Not bad. Doing very good.
2: Very good. Thank you.
1: Good. So Nick, yeah, if you want to dive into it a little bit and introduce Tom and uh, some of the topics you wanted to discuss today.
3: All right. Yeah. So uh, Tom is a, a buddy of mine. Um, I met, we met like probably a year and a half ago. I think it was last summer. And basically uh, we're both from the same city, you know, in the Rockford area. And I train uh, Brazilian Jitsu, and have been doing it for about seven years. And uh, we had this, there's, there are three or four different gyms in the area. And basically one of the gyms, uh, Northern Illinois Combat Club, started doing a Sunday open mat. So I started going to that. And, uh, you know, what's funny is I always thought like I had this thought, you know, prior to a year ago that I'm like, you know, there's probably because the jiu-jitsu world is small enough and the libertarian kind of Austrian economics world is small enough. I'm like, I might be the most knowledgeable guy like nobody knows more about grappling and like Austrian business cycle theory than I do. Like nobody, there are plenty of people who know more about one of those things, but maybe nobody knows more about both of those things. Um, and then I met Tom and he wiped the floor with me in jujitsu. Um, and then I'm like, and that's what you're always looking for, you know, because I've been doing this a long time and you need people to kick your ass and grappling to progress. So then I, I friend requested Tom on Facebook and I see that he posts like some Bastiat article or article about Friedrich Bastiat. And I'm like, it was that stepbrother scene. Like, did we just become best friends? You know. So, uh, so it turns out that I didn't know more about Austrian economics and grappling. I wasn't even the most knowledgeable guy in my city. So that was that was kind of humbling. I had to refine it. Like, maybe I know more about kamoras and like, uh, you know, the the war in Syria. Maybe I'm that guy. Maybe maybe that. So I had to lower my bar a little bit. So anyway, that's how that's how Tom and I connected.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty cool uh, uh meeting with you, Nick, because uh when when we first uh started grappling stuff, I'm like, hey man, this guy's got real skills. Uh he he uh definitely poses a threat from the bottom uh when it comes to jujitsu and stuff. And then you hit me up on Facebook uh talking about Bastiat. And uh I had just finished reading The Law uh by Frederick Bastiat, which is a fantastic book. If any of the listeners have not read that book yet. Uh, I highly recommend, uh, everybody in the country should probably at least, uh, read the cliff notes to that book, if not read the whole book, cause it is a fantastic, uh, piece of literature that still applies today. Um, yeah, man, Nick. So yeah, we just, we just kind of connected right away based on our hobbies and what we like to study. So, uh, that alone, uh, yeah, exactly. Just like the Step Brothers, Like, hey, did we just come best friends? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did.
1: <laughs> Dude, I swear there is some kind of like um, connection between that stuff. Because when I went to A&P school to become an aircraft mechanic, um, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life after high school. Uh, I think there's about six 18-year-olds in my class. The rest were older. They're probably like, uh, you know, mid-20s, early 30s doing career changes. But of the 18-year-olds in my class, I think six of us, are like staunch libertarians, which is like statistically impossible. And so it was like all the people who didn't go to universities and went to A and P school, which is a little more, uh, obscure route. We all had very, very close political ideologies, which is, uh, kind of what I see the same thing when, when Nick was talking about how he met you. So interesting, uh, the way things work sometimes.
3: Yeah. And I, maybe Tom, you could corroborate this theory. I was trying to figure out the, uh, percentage, like if you, if we look at the, the whole population, you say, what percentage of people are actual free thinkers? Like they don't just take whatever they hear from one side of the media or the other Fox news or CNN, and they just regurgitate that thing. It seems like when you, when you talk to a lot of martial artists, like you go to an MMA or Jitsu gym, you notice that there's a very high percentage of people that will actually have like thoughtful conversations. I mean, despite the, the kind of uh, stereotype being that fighters are a bunch of like knuckle dragging cavemen, you find out that there are actually some very uh, developed minds. And my theory as to why that is, uh, is because I think if you're going to get into martial arts, you have to be wired a little bit differently to begin with. Like if you're going to either get punched in the face or, uh, you know, roll around on the ground trying to strangle guys, um, it, you have to, you have to be an outside the box thinker to begin with. So it's not, I'm not saying that everybody who doesn't do martial arts obviously isn't open-minded and not everybody that's, uh, in martial arts is open-minded. It's just kind of this like strong correlation that you see.
2: Absolutely. You know, I've, I've had more conversations on the mat, uh, more deep philosophical questions and conversations with, uh, other martial artists than I ever have in a classroom.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. I've had I can say that the exact same thing. I mean, the amount of uh, great conversations where you're staying after a class and you just get wrapped up talking, and it's like forty five minutes have gone by, and it's like, oh shit, I have a birthday party to be at at five, <laughs> you know? it's like all of a sudden, like your your schedule has gone away.
1: For sure. So, Tom, one of the first things that uh, Nick told me about yourself was uh, that you were really into the concept of infinite banking. Um, Is that something you can kind of give an elevator pitch on and kind of elaborate on a little bit for someone who's never heard about it?
2: Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I actually uh, have been in business doing this for seven years. And what it is basically is it's a method of recapturing interest charges that would normally go to banks, finance companies, and credit card companies uh, is a method and a strategy to recapture that uh, what would normally go out the door to these finance companies, you're able to recapture that in, in, uh, in a way that is uh, both tax uh, beneficial and, uh, it comes with some guarantees as well. Um, in a nutshell, uh, it's, so there's two types of, uh, life insurance companies in the world, because it has to do with life insurance. So life insurance, uh, there's two types of companies, one being a stock company and one being a mutual company. Uh, there's two types of companies out there. The, the stock companies, the profits of these companies go to the owners, right? So anytime a profit uh, sees in a company, it goes to the owners of the company. So within a stock company, every time a stock company has a profit, it goes to the shareholders and the stockholders. Well, anytime a mutual company Uh, has a profit in their company, it goes to the owners of uh, the policies themselves. So uh, my clients and me, myself, are only aligned with mutual companies. So then we share in the profits of those companies. Uh, Now, the infinite banking concept is a strategy that uh, allows you to recapture interest. The vehicle that's used is dividend-paying whole life insurance that's structured for cash rather than death benefit. So the reason that is is because our need for financing is way more than our need for a death benefit. Not saying that there's not a need for a death benefit because, you know, young families uh, definitely need to replace a loss if that does happen. But more of the focus is on a cash value growth. So then you can use that cash value growth when, with inside of a life insurance policy uh, to finance your big ticket items in life and then pay yourself back with interest. So then you recapture uh, what would normally go to a bank and finance company. So that's kind of the infinite banking concept uh, kind of glazed over. Uh, of course, it goes a lot deeper than that. And there's a lot of nuances to the concept. Uh, but that's it in a nutshell. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it comes with guarantees. Um, it's true compound interest. So it doesn't go up and down. It's not correlated to the stock market or the real estate market. Uh, it's not tied to any, uh, of those things. Uh, it's based on, um, actuarial, uh, data that comes from mortality tables. Well, when we're speaking about life insurance and mortality data, we have mortality data that goes back hundreds of years, right? So we know the likelihood of, you know, someone age 32 in relatively good health. We know, um, that down to a T, we can't say who is going to die this year, but somebody in a large group of people is going to die. And we know how many, uh, People are going to die this year, next year, the following year, and so on. Uh, and, and so it's based off of uh, mortality data, which is scientific, right? We're not guessing. We're not, uh, we're not based on some corporate uh, board that determines, oh, well, the value of our the product is this this year or and it's this next year. We, oh, we made some poor decisions. Now, uh, all of our investors left and we're stuck just like Enron or WorldCom, all these companies that gone bust and, you know, the the average investor got caught on the hook for all of that. Uh, It's based on actuarial science, which is uh, uh, very, very uh, true and solid data to go based off of uh, rather than the woes of the stock market, the printing ability of the federal reserve or anything like that. So uh, it's a very solid, safe uh, strategy that one of the things that I would love to point out is I'm not a big fan of the government. And that's why I'm uh, on this show right now. Cause we yeah. all agree on this. Um, I'm not a big fan of the government. Um, I'm not a big fan of big banks because uh, you know, with our federal reserve banking system, the the fractional reserve banking system in which we currently operate. Uh, and every commercial bank is part of that system, right? So I, I don't like government, I don't like banks, and I don't like Wall Street. Um, I just recently read a book by Barry James Dyke called The Pirates of Manhattan. This book was basically about, uh, you know, lawsuits, litigations, uh, all this consolidation of the average everyday guy's money going to Wall Street and then just, you know, collecting fees on it, ripping everyone off and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of Wall Street, not a big fan of banks, not a big fan of the government. And this concept allows uh, someone to basically uh, succeed from all of those institutions and profit uh in regards to those three institutions. So, I'm gonna succeed from those institutions. I want as little to do with those institutions as possible. I wanna pay less in taxes. I wanna pay less interest to banks, to finance companies. And I don't wanna send my money to the stock market to get played with by so called professionals, right? Uh, and in doing so, that allows for me and my family to grow wealthier every single year regardless of this, what the stock market does, whatever the banks do, uh, it doesn't matter. My family grows wealthier every single year by implementing this strategy in my life.
1: Very interesting. And that's what I wanted to ask you next is, how is the resilience of it uh, looking forward uh, to a potential economic collapse or downturn after all this post-stimulus uh, COVID printing of money and the national debt we've added? Is this something that's a very secure hedge against inflation if you want to put your money somewhere safe?
2: Yeah. So actually this is probably one of the best places to put your money into, to uh, hedge inflation. So it comes with a premium, right? Every month you pay a premium. Well, if, if the value of our dollars keep on declining, like they have been a, a dollar yesterday is more valuable than it is today and so on and so forth. So You know, two years from now, 10 years from now, if my monthly premium is $1,000 a month, well, that $1,000 that I'm putting in every single month, it's growing, compounded, tax-free. And if my $1,000 premium a month this month, it's not going to be the same $1,000 a month premium in 10 years. It's going to be a lot easier to pay that $1,000 a month premium in 10 years because the value of our dollar has gone down. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So my premiums are going to be level and stay the same throughout the course of my life until I decide I don't want to pay them anymore, um, because some point in the future um, I I can uh, m- my policy will be quote paid up, so then I don't have to pay any more premiums after that point. But uh, the premiums that I do pay in the future are going to be with dollars that are worth less and less. So uh, if you look at a cash value uh, on a chart, it looks like an exponential curve, okay? So at the beginning years, it's rather slow growth, but then towards the later years when you're likely to die, the growth uh, spikes up like a hockey stick, like an exponential growth curve, uh, which is what you want in in an environment like we are experiencing today with the, the monetary base basically doing the same thing, right? Our monetary base over the last you know, 10 years have, has been on this exponential curve uh, and we have to keep pace with that or uh, we suffer the opportunity cost of not doing something like that, right? If we just put our money and park it in a bank earning less than 1%, uh, we're, we're never gonna, we're just losing money due to inflation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so why is this such a well-kept secret? Is, is there a catch to it or is it something that they just don't want getting out? Cause I, I've looked into it since you first told me about it and, it, and I don't see like any real catch or, Oh, well, here's the reason why no one's doing it. Um, yeah. is, is there anything like that? Well, um,
2: there, there are a lot of people doing it. Uh, it's, it's not uh, really published knowledge out there, but um, <clears throat> that book that I just read, The Pirates of Manhattan, actually the largest purchasers of this type of life insurance are banks themselves. So Bank of America, Morgan Chase, um, all these large banks, they actually buy uh, high cash value, whole life insurance from a mutual company on all their executives, it, totaling billions and billions of dollars. Some of these uh, banks, they own more cash value life insurance than they do in brick and mortar locations around the world. Now, wow. it, think of that, think of that because Morgan Chase, they own branch offices all across the country. Some of them in the middle of downtown New York city, the middle of Chicago, uh, and, and they're the tallest buildings in those cities. So you got to think like that building is probably worth over a billion dollars.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: well, they have more money in cash value life insurance than they do in brick and mortar locations around the country. That just, when, when I found that out, that just blew my mind. And, uh, you know bank executives they're not stupid people they're very smart people and there's a reason why they're they're doing this and it's because it's safe it's liquid it hedges inflation uh all these reasons and it's tax advantaged right so all, all these reasons that uh that we should be doing this is why banks are already doing it into the into the billions of dollars right yeah. now Now, one thing I want to say is, look, this is paying less in taxes, right? You're going to pay less in taxes. You're going to pay less interest to these banks that own this same product. And uh, you're going to be sending less money to Wall Street. Uh, And these three institutions, they have a big influence over the overall uh, what we do and what we see, what we hear uh, in the big wide world, right? Now, these companies have influence uh, over government, the the these institutions, uh, well, one of them is government, right? Uh, these institutions uh, have a lot of pull and a lot of say on what people see, hear, and, and and so forth. So if if I was in Wall Street, being an executive, I wouldn't want people to know this. I want them to send my money, send their money to me for me to manage, and I get to collect a fee on that, and I get to play with that money. Right. I don't want people saving their own money in a private entity that I don't control. Right. I want to, I want to, I want to make some money and make some profits. Right. So those three institutions, they don't, they don't necessarily want this information out there uh, to the big wide world because uh, they want everyone's money. It's about control.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it makes dollars, it makes sense. So (laughs) if if I'm, Okay, so I'm sold on the argument. This is the first time I've heard about it. If I'm listening, what can I do to to get in on this? Because it sounds like a very lucrative path and and a smart place to put my money right now. What would I want to do to get started?
2: Well, the first thing that you should want to do is read Nelson Nash's uh, book. Uh, Here it is. It's it's called Becoming Your Own Banker, um, Implementing the Infinite Banking Concept by R. Nelson Nash. This is the book that anybody who is listening, uh, this should be the first go to, um, this book, uh, changed my life seven years ago. A buddy of mine who I used to work with at MetLife, I've been in the financial services industry since I was 19 years old. Um, I didn't know about this strategy, uh, for, for several years working in the financial services industry and, uh, what I found out after I left MetLife was one of my buddies, he said, Hey, Tom, let's meet up for lunch. I want to share something with you. Um, and it's changed my life. And I think it could change your life. So I, awesome. So I met the guy for lunch. We talked a little while. He gave me this book. Uh, I was young and, and not interested in all this stuff quite yet. So I actually took this book and I threw it in the backseat of my car and I never looked at it. And uh, my buddy was a good buddy of mine. He called me back a, like a month later or so. And he said, Tom, so what do you think, man? He was all excited. What do you think? Becoming your own banker, Nelson Nash, what do you think? And I said, honestly, Jim, uh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't read the book. And he says, Tom, he says, what is your problem? He said, this book uh, can change your life if you just read it. I said, okay, I'm sorry. All right, I'll read the book. So then that weekend, I end up reading the book through two times. And I that Sunday evening, I could not sleep. I couldn't sleep because I knew if this was true, if it was, because I wasn't completely 100% sold, if this book is true, Jim's right. It's going to change my life. So I flipped over the book. I called the number on the back of the book. And Nelson Nash answers the telephone (laughs) and Nelson Nash could tell I was young. And he let, we talked for a little bit. I have some questions. I have some questions. He, he answered my questions eloquently and accurately. And he said, listen, son, he said, you ever, you ever heard of an infinite baking think tank? I said, no, sir. No, I haven't. And he's like, well, I suggest you get yourself down to Birmingham, Alabama, and you get yourself to one of these meetings. I said, okay, sure. So I booked a flight, bought a ticket, went down there, uh, met Nelson Nash, met his wife, Mary, uh, met some of the best financial advisors in the country. And from that moment forward, I said that I have to share this with people. First, I have to implement this in my own life. And now I have to share this with other people because of what it is and how much it's, it's going to be able to help people, uh, especially now, right. Wow. Especially, <clears throat> especially now when we're starting to, to see these things unfold in the world and in, in our own country, uh, we're watching these things unfold and look, man, uh, Banks have had control over uh, the issuance of our currency for over a hundred years. And so for someone first learning about this, uh, Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash is a fantastic start. He wrote a couple other books called Building Your Your Warehouse of Wealth. Uh, It's also another really good book uh, to pick up and read um if, if anybody uh wants to get into it more there's countless videos online um infinitebanking.org is a very good uh resource for people to look at um but yeah
1: man no, that's a really cool story i had no idea you <laughs> that whole backstory of meeting the author of that book that's incredible um you know is he still alive the yeah, author and
2: Actually, um, he died during heart surgery, uh, just last year. Um, Yep. Yeah. Uh, well he was, uh, he was a Christian and he just said like, Hey, uh, you know, if anything happens to me, I'm just graduating on into the next life. And, uh, I'm going to have a long conversation with my brother, uh, about this strategy because, uh, his brother actually sold him a state farm policy in 1954 for for an annual premium of $388, annual premium. And uh, his brother did not know about the infinite banking concept. um, And he just sold them a basic whole life insurance contract. And Nelson actually used the dividends to reduce premiums for the first 15 years of the policy because he just was uneducated. He just didn't know any better, right? he wanted to get as much death benefit as he could with as little premium as he could. And that's the mindset of everybody out there when they're thinking about life insurance is I wanna pay as little as possible and get the highest death benefit as possible. Well, this concept kind of flips that over on its head because you wanna pay as much as you can in premium and get as little death benefit as you can because the cash value growth uh, is significantly higher when you structure a policy this way. And in the end of the policy towards later on in life, when you're more likely to die, you'll actually end up with a higher death benefit than if you were to do it the traditional way anyways. So why not build an early cash values that you can that will grow tax-free for life uh, that you can utilize that money now while you're alive to finance your big ticket items in life. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense when, when you start factoring in, uh, you know, premiums, cash value, death benefit. Right. But Nelson Nash, I, I got the privilege to, to, uh, sit down with dinner. Uh, me and him went to a steak dinner, uh, I, I met him actually in Birmingham, Alabama, when I went to the think tank. And then a few years later, I went to uh, an event in St. Louis, Missouri. And after the first break, he was giving a seminar. After the first break, I ran up there. I said, Nelson, uh, nice to see you again. And he's like, oh, yeah, nice to, nice to see you. I said, Nelson, I would love to invite you and your wife, Mary, out to dinner tonight. And he goes, well, son, he said, uh, the organizers of the, the event, uh, already asked me and Mary to go out to dinner, but uh, you're welcome to join us if you'd like. I said. Cool. Thank, Thank you. you. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so we we had a a big steak dinner, and uh, we we sit down, and the first thing he says is, "Look, I know you probably have a lot of questions for me and whatnot, but the first things first, we need to have a conversation about your faith because that's that's the that's the uh, the most important conversation we can have at this time, and I said, "Okay." So we we uh, talked about that for half an hour to an hour, and then we we got into the, some some questions that I wanted to ask him about infinite banking and um, so on and so forth. So I'm just like very thankful and very privileged to be able to meet him and also just have some true deep heartfelt conversations with the man because, um, you know, he he changed my life and he's changed a lot of other people's lives uh, so much that uh, there's, there's really no way I could repay
3: him. And, And, you know, Tom, this is one of those things where uh, it's, it's kind of a catch 22 people that think along our lines, liberty minded people. Because the reason we pay attention and are interested in politics is because we, like, at the root of it, hate politics. Like, I, I hate the idea <laughs> For sure. that that bureaucrats that don't care about me, that I'll never meet, are going to have some influence and power over my life. And that goes along with the people who are really uh, the ones that influence them, like bankers and special interests and all these things. I just hate all of it. And I hate that all of my neighbors and all of the people in our society believe that these people work for them when we know that they really don't. So the reason we pay attention to this stuff is because we despise it. So it's kind of a catch 22. And then for me, at least, I don't know how if this applies to you, but I kind of, it's a guilty pleasure The kind of political theater. I love watching the debates and and all of the train wrecks and, and all the, you know, uh, testimonies in front of Congress. It's all really entertaining. I hate to admit, Um, but you know, being, Uh, I don't want to say obsessed, but being uh, very, very, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Being obsessed with this stuff. Uh, You know, when all this stuff started happening in March and you see all the federal reserve activity. And then a couple months later, we have the riots breaking out after like the killing of George Floyd. And I have all these friends that uh, don't really follow politics and they reach out to me and ask me what I think of everything that's going on. And it's, first of all, I admire those people. I admire people that just take their kids to soccer practice, they watch They watch sports, I don't look down on those people at all. It's like, I, I wish I had that in me to just tune this stuff out. Unfortunately, I don't think, I think, you know, the old phrase, uh, you know, you may not care about politics, but politics cares about you. I think that will eventually come true. So when people ask, uh, you know, what do we do about this, about all the the money printing and the, the you know, unnecessary wars in the Middle East and all these things, it's like, I, I don't know, you look at if there's a political solution to this, it's like, I think the Ron Paul campaigns of 2008 and 2012 were kind of a one shot deal. Uh, You know, I think it was HL Mencken that said that the average man doesn't want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. And I don't know if there is ever going to be a real libertarian uh, nomination of a, a presidential candidate or any significant number of people in Congress, because I don't think most people are just wired that way. So, it goes back to the question, well, what do we do about this? And the answer that I'm coming to more recently is that, okay, maybe there is no political solution, but you know what you can do is just build your arc because, you know, if and when the flood happens, you just want to be prepared. And, you know, if it's either buying like Bitcoin or gold and silver or doing something like infinite banking, all you really can do at the end of the day is try to prepare your life for any scenario. You know, you kind of uh, hope for the best, But uh, expect the worst. And this to me, infinite banking is kind of uh, along those lines. It's like, hey, whether things are great or if things take a downturn, this is a great, uh, very disciplined move to make with your money.
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, As far as like banking goes, look, banking needs to be solved at the you and me level, it doesn't need to be solved uh, by a a board that doesn't report to anybody, they're not elected. Uh, we both know that the federal reserve is not federal. There are no reserves. Uh, this is nothing new. You can, you can look this up. This information is free for anybody to look at. Uh, but the, the function of the banking, uh, method needs to be solved at the you and me level. And what's cool about a mutual life insurance company to use uh, you know, this type of life insurance to solve your own need for financing, solve the banking method, is that with a mutual company, you're a mutual owner of the company. So it's just a group of people that all have a need, and it's, they're solving it by... Combining their resources, combining their money, and uh, they're solving the banking function at the you and me level, which that's what we desperately need uh, in our country. And honestly, in the world right now, because uh, central banking is, is the, the, the number one uh, way that we handle uh, our money today.
1: Sure. Hey, so Tom, pivoting back a little bit, when you said you, when you met uh, Mr. Nash, um, you said he he first talked to you about your faith. Now, is that something that did his uh, interaction with you, did that have a a tangible effect on your life and your faith after speaking with him? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, I I
2: had already uh, kind of gone down that path with another one of my mentors. Uh, So actually, when I was, when I was young, I was 13 years old, And I, uh, started working for a guy who, uh, was into professional bicycle racing and he owned, um, he owned uh, a bunch of motorhomes and a tower and a, and a stage and a high speed camera to go put on these professional bicycle races. And I would help, I would travel the country and I would help him set up. Uh, during the summer, when I wasn't in school, I'd help him set up the start finish lines to a lot of these bicycle races. And so we drove for hours and hours together. And he was my really my first introduction uh, to, to my religious beliefs and and, and to uh, my faith. Because when, uh, when I first met him, I I didn't have any, right? I, I was kind of, I grew up, uh, neither of my parents would ever go to church. They didn't really—we—they uh, weren't religious at all. They didn't have any faith when it came to you know whatever religion, right? So I, I didn't grow up in that background. I don't have any of that background growing up at all. And so when I was first introduced to that, um, I was just like, "What is this? Like, I, I don't even—I don't even know." And uh, so Tom Wise is his name. Uh, he, he, was, he, he had so much of an impact on my life at such a young age that I credit a lot of my free thinking, a lot of my uh, don't believe in the mainstream uh, from him. So I have to credit a lot of the way and uh, a lot of the reason why I am who I am I have to credit a lot of that to Tom Wise because he made me question everything Uh, and that just kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of things that I never even knew were out there Um, but fast forward to when uh, Nelson uh, also said look Tom we got to look at your faith first like that's my second mentor that brought Face up first things first right rather than talking about money politics uh, all of that stuff hey look tom you got to get your faith straight if that's not there then you know these other things don't matter uh you need to start there and we can move forward from there i said that makes a lot of sense uh so yeah he he had a big impact on on my life uh, when it comes to my faith, but also Tom Wise did uh, when I was 13 years old, meeting him uh, and 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 working working for him when I was a teenager.
1: That's really cool, because Nick and I kind of come to the same conclusion from an opposite approach. Like, we were both raised in a, a very practicing Catholic family. We went to a private Catholic school our entire childhood. Um, complete opposite of your childhood, because ours was more or less, this is the facts, accept it, don't question anything, um, as far as the religious part of it. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's a lot of, uh, good that I see in the Catholic faith still, but as I got older, I kind of stopped going to church so much, never a day in my life. Have I not believed in God? Um, never, never been an atheist or even anything close. Um, but I did stop going to Catholic church in my later teen years, but now that I'm a father of four kids and I'm watching what's going on in the world and, um, watching the television, the music, the toys that just, there's like a, there's a very queer, evil agenda, evil force in this world somewhere. Um, and it's really brought me closer and closer to God than, I, than I've been in a long time and, and in a way more genuine manner too, because now it's actually me coming to an intellectual conclusion through my own life experience rather than being told what to believe. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you uh, know,
3: to, Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll, uh, I just wanted to add one thing to that and along the same lines, it's just to, to supplement what Mike had brought up, but You know, I remember like growing up and when you first, I don't know what grade they introduced like World War II in history, if it's like fifth or sixth grade, but you learn about uh, like the Holocaust and you you ask yourself like, how does like an entire country, like all of the German citizens just went along with this thing and nobody stood up and questioned it. And of course, like, and I, I had this thought like when I was a kid and it always stuck with me and it never really resurfaced again until I heard like Jordan Peterson bring it up. Uh, a couple years ago when I was like binging his lectures when I first discovered him. I think it was like 2017. And he's like, you know, when the shit hits the fan, he, of course, that's not what how Jordan Peterson would say it. Say, say it like, like Jordan in Peterson. Times, <laughs> in times of chaos, you know, the masses, it's like, oh, I wouldn't be a Nazi. And it's like, you're damn wrong. You bloody well probably would be because everybody does that. You know, it's like he, he goes along and he, he kind of <laughs> yeah. talks about how most people move with the herd when there's instability or when there's uh, times of instability and as 21st century Americans uh, we have lived in the most insulated bubble in human history
0: like yeah. we don't
3: really know hardship you know when COVID was kicking off and you had all the commercials in May and June and there's all this bullshit and it's like during these hard times like this is this is our generation's World War II this is our this is our Vietnam. And it's like, guys, no, it isn't like, this is, yeah, there's, there's a virus going around. And it's, if you're in a uh, vulnerable demographic, it can potentially be very dangerous. I get it. But we acted like this is our world war two, like this is real hardship. And it's like, go, go uh, learn about like the, the, uh, the Holodomor or the Holocaust or all of these things. This is, or what's happening in Yemen right now. Like this is, that's hardship, right? When there's little toddlers starving to death, that's hardship. When you're, when you're in a country that's been war-torn, your entire upbringing, if you're 20 years old and you're some kid living in a village in Afghanistan that's constantly being drone-struck, that's hardship, okay? Uh, when, when the Al-Qaeda or the Taliban is occupying your, your, uh, your farm, that's hardship. Uh, and that's just happening right now. Just read history. Learn about, like, uh, the smallpox epidemic. It, this, what we're going through right now is not that tough. And people don't realize how much worse things could get Mm -hmm. And I guess to me, when we talk about like the, uh, the civil unrest and everything, gosh, I'm going on a tangent. Let me bring it back to what we were talking about. So when you (laughs) go down that rabbit hole, we can go down that rabbit hole later. Mm. But, um, it's like, and I remember, uh, did you ever watch the twilight zone? Tom, were you a fan? Did you watch those growing up at all?
2: no no i didn't okay no.
3: well i mike and i our our dad uh, and mom introduced us to twilight zone and we we would binge them like on the Sci Fi Network.
1: i've seen every yeah episode on the, the sci
3: on the sci-fi network they always had like the fourth of july and new year's eve they would have uh uh sorry twilight zone uh marathons and then they got the box set for us later and there's uh there's one episode where this guy goes back to he was a german uh ss officer during the Holocaust and it's supposed to be set in like 1963 and he goes back to, uh, I don't think it was Auschwitz, but it was uh, one of the concentration camps. Dachau. Dachau, yeah, the the Dachau. And uh, he goes back there and it's empty and it was like a museum because they're still standing today. And then he goes there uh, 20 years older after this happened And he runs into the ghosts of the Jews who were killed there, and he's put on trial for his crimes. And it's at the end, Rod Serling, uh, the creator of The Twilight Zone, gives this monologue where he talks about how the Dachaus, the Auschwitzes, all of these things must be left standing because they're a monument to a moment in time where men... uh, Yeah, Nick, Nick, I'm going to get the exact
1: quote if you want
3: yeah go ahead because yeah, it's, me... it's fantastic and then yeah. i'm going to come back to my point that i promised this in. Why, don't, why
1: don't you keep talking because i got to pull it up real quick and I'll, I'll give you the exact quote it's really powerful so i want to get it right
3: yeah so so uh you know when i asked myself the question when i was a little kid that i've never it's this riddle that i've never been able to solve it's like okay when this shit hits <clears> the fan how what principles do you hold dear that you will absolutely never compromise on because uh, like jordan peterson and so many other people have pointed out when they should hit the fan most people move with the herd they do not want to be the zebra that is you know left out of the pack that the lion attacks sure and uh it's it's one of those things where if you don't have deeply held convictions whether they're religious i think i think religion and faith makes those principles much easier to hold like if you truly value human life and and the sanctity of life
1: for sure then
3: you know you won't compromise on those things well, when or you, you mean, have a much better chance cuz I I don't know. Like I if I was born if, if I was me, if you picked me out of 2020 and put me in uh, Nazi Germany with my upbringing and experiences and, and where my beliefs are right now, I would like to think that I would be different, even though, even if it meant my death, because let's be honest, it probably did the same way the founders knew when they were signing the declaration that they were signing their own death warrants potentially. And that's something that I look at uh, our country. Now, I think a very shockingly small percentage of people would be willing to do. And everybody thinks that they're the good guys. That's the other thing I, you have to realize, like when you watch a, a good, uh, like superhero movie, a good villain always thinks he's the good guy.
1: You know that's what makes it yeah.
3: compelling. Everybody it, always thinks they're the good guy.
1: Nick, before we get too off subject, I got that narration pulled up. Um, so the ending scene, it, it, there's a doctor standing in the middle of um, Dachau, which is now like a museum, you know, for people to see. And he looks around and says, "Why does it still stand? Why do we keep it standing? Like, you know, why don't we just burn this thing to the ground?" He's, you know, insinuating, <clears throat> and then. Rod Serling walks on the scene, smoking one of the many cigarettes that killed him, as he always was, and says, there is an answer to the doctor's question. All the Dachaus must remain standing. The Dachaus, the Belsons, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitzes, all of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it, they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its uh, remembrance, then we become the gravediggers. Something to dwell on, remember, not only in the twilight zone, but wherever man walks God's earth. Sure. Yeah, that's one of those ones I, I watch one every time. I'm just like, wow, this is more than just entertainment. This is like, tell yeah. your kids this for the next <laughs> six generations uh, oh
3: yeah tom i can't believe that you haven't uh gone down the twilight zone rabbit hole i'm pretty sure there's yeah no yeah there. and it is it is well worth it rod serling mm-hmm. was really ahead of his time and if you don't know his backstory this is really crazy and mike i know you know this story so any details i have screwed up just straighten me out on
1: well for me uh, it's word of mouth he, so he i've served, not
3: heard of that much yeah no so he served in world war ii and uh his best friend was by his side and I I think they were fighting uh, on the European uh, theater. And there were many points where Rod Serling thought he would die. And, you know, he ends up making it through the war, uh, through VE day. And they're on the tarmac uh, to go back home. And his uh, friend is standing like not too far from him, but this plane had taken off and a helicopter. helicopter, Yeah. Mm. Sorry. had taken off and I don't know if it was a bag of luggage or some equipment had fallen out of the helicopter. And after surviving this entire war where they face certain deaths so many times, uh, this equipment falls off this helicopter and crushes his friend and kills him when they had already won the war. So this, you you take a guy who is already very, uh, you know, a deep thinker and very creative. And then you give him this kind of uh, experience and it, it brings out all of the darkness and the deep thinking that you could ever expect out of somebody. Um, just like, just like J.R.R. R. Tolkien, if you guys haven't seen the movie Tolkien um, he was, he served in world war one and uh, and then his son served in world war two and he wrote The Hobbit when he was in the trenches in World War I. Um, hopefully, I, at least I remember reading that a long time ago. So somebody might fact check me. I'm pretty sure he did, though, because I think they mentioned that in the movie. Um, and when he watched World War II unfold, he began writing The Lord of the Rings, where it's like this ultimate evil that, that all men desire. And to me, I always took that as this is essentially government power. I mean, of course, it could be the corollaries to so many things. Uh, but there's something I think about all of those traumatic experiences that really uh, demand some deep thinking from people and it, it really develops their philosophy. So I would highly recommend checking out pretty much every twilight zone. They're all just, even to this day, they're what, 60 years old now and they still hold up. They're incredible. Dude,
1: so many movies were were based off of them. Like when you look at them, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is where this one came from. This is where the sixth sense came from. This is where this one came from. They're all like, all of these ideas were planted by one guy in the 60s and 50s it's crazy yeah i mean i i've heard of
2: the twilight zone uh i've heard of it uh, the the show i've even think i've seen the the beginning uh black and white you
0: mm-hmm. know <laughs> yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah so i have seen i've seen a uh, little bits and pieces here but i've never actually mm. sat down and watched an episode yeah you guys have my interest peak so high that, uh you know, maybe this afternoon or something I might.
1: uh, uh Last might I checked, visit. they were, they're all on Netflix. Last I checked, if not, they're on YouTube. But the, the first two right. I'd recommend, four. the first two I'd recommend, uh, if you're going to go watch it, just for you or people that like Liberty, is the yeah. one we just talked about. It's called uh, Death's Head Revisited. Death's Head Revisited is the one about uh, Dachau. Okay. And then the other one is The Obsolete Man, which is like, that one's more relevant than ever right now. It's about a librarian who um, is deemed to be obsolete by the state because the state thinks libraries is an obsolete uh, profession because <laughs> books are now illegal, um, and he also has a Bible which is banned because the state's proven God doesn't exist. So they put him before a, a jury of just NCPs or NPCs, sorry, where they say he's deemed obsolete. The state says there's no God, like so they. They sentenced him to death for believing in God and trying to, uh, you know, promote books and free thinking. And no
3: spoilers, by the way. I Don't won't. Forget. I won't
1: spoil it. But that's that's the premise of it. Yeah. And dude, when you yeah. watch this one, like I watched it just probably about three weeks ago for the first time in a couple of years. And in the time of COVID and all this, all this government tyranny, yeah, some chills on my spine. Like shit, this is like yeah. not far out. <laughs>
3: No, it's, it's really not far out at all. And that's, I think all, uh, all great fiction writers and Tom, are you into fiction at all? I mean, is like Lord of the Rings uh, any, are there any yeah. novels that like really stuck with you like that? Because- yes.
2: Yeah, so I read all of the Lord of the Rings. I read all of uh, the Harry Potter series uh, series of unfortunate events. So yeah, I I do, I do get into that stuff. Uh, but uh, lately it's been a lot of stuff that's practical and that can help me out. And,
3: more yeah, for time. sure. And even I, am not a huge, uh, reader. I'm an, I like audiobooks and I like listening to podcasts, but I, uh, I have a thing where, and I know reading is worthwhile. Don't get me wrong. I know there's something about having a physical book and actually opening and turning the pages and actually giving it your undivided attention. That yeah. is, it has a, a quality that you can't really get from an audiobook or, or uh, even a podcast. I mean, you can still soak in the information, but, uh, you know, for me, it's like the uh, the movies and everything are even are even worthwhile. And uh, and again, to bring up Jordan Peterson, one of the things he talks about is uh, I think this is from Carl Jung, but he talks about how fiction uh, transcends truth. Like it's so Shakespeare, these Shakespeare made stories that are did not happen. They're not factual, but they're more true than than almost anything like at the the core, the moral of these stories. The author or the writer is getting at things that that they couldn't express uh, just verbally and they couldn't write their opinion down and say, here's my essay on why I believe this. But when somebody tells a captivating story, the reason that it's captivating is because there is some level of truth that we can't really wrap our minds around. And that to me, that's why I always like from the time I was uh, in third grade, I loved the Lord of the Rings. And there was there was something and I, I didn't understand really what it was. But I'm like, these are like some really deep ideas that I feel like can kind of like guide people through life somehow. And e- even at the the macro level, like it's about the the big battle of good versus evil. And then there's also like the interpersonal struggles, like you're facing this insurmountable thing. Uh, but it's kind of like the, the archetypal, you know, the. Uh, hero's journey that you hear so much about that basically everything is based on there's a reason that these structures in fiction always pop up because they're almost uh timelessly true the same way the parables in the bible are are like these are written thousands of years ago and you can still pull out this this wisdom from them that is really timeless like the the value and the the lessons from them are never going to go anywhere They're as long as mankind is around those stories will be relevant Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah I've always felt the same way about music too because I've always been someone who listened to music you know that my grandparents and my parents listened to Um, even when I was in high school and stuff my my friends would be so confused because they're you know listening to top 40 and stuff and they're like how do you listen to all this old stuff and I'm like because I'm a lyrics guy not 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 like a uh, put an ex- expiration date on a song like you know bob Dylan's words are timeless like listen to what he's saying like this has helped me through life you know you listen to like a, a lot of like the jim Croce or the Leonard skinner stuff where all the lyrics are so autobiographical and it's like this guy had money fame and fortune and he's struggling and he's saying wine women and song are not the answer like this is really interesting to me like it's it's, it's not making him happy you know everyone's chasing status and money and all the girls you can get and all that so i've always had kind of the same thing where you you look at it um, as a timeless type uh, vehicle to send, to send a message through, through the future. Yeah.
2: You know, the, the stories that people can tell with, with music, uh, with, with books, with uh, podcasts, uh, people can convey a message in something that they really truly believe and hold true and dear to their heart. And it's, and it's captivating in a way because a song, you know, a song, the, the, the melody catches you, uh, the beat, you know, makes you nod your head back and forth. And then the lyrics come in and they tell a story. They, they, they say something that, that really resonates with people and people can take that internalize it and to implement that in their own philosophy, uh, when it comes to us seeing information and taking in information, uh, it's important that it is entertaining uh, because if it's not entertaining, people are going to tune out. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are, are, people are not going to listen to it. They're, they're not going to look into it. Even, even though the content itself might be uh, you know, spot on the content might be uh, so good, but if it's not entertaining, uh, it's not gonna. It's not gonna gain the following that it needs to to really make an impact.
1: Mm-hmm. And when and when you look at like modern pop music, it's just like they're very. Uh, they draw a lot of parallels. You because know, my kids are so little, they're toddler songs. They're very similar to pop music. It's just high repetition, very catchy beats. <laughs> makes you, you know, makes my two or my my seventeen month old just bounce up and down and dance because it just has that. It it gets that human reaction in your brain, like oh yeah, this is a catchy beat, and people <laughs> listen to that, and all they're being sold in pop music is nothing but instant gratification it's like drink sex dance just like and just skimpy outfits and stuff and it's like uh naval ravikant had a had a really good quote in a book i'm reading of his um called the, the almanac of naval ravikant it's not his book it's a he, but it's about him but he said you know that song that you got stuck in your head and you can't get out every thought works that way be careful what you read mm. I was like shit that's powerful <laughs> be careful what you put in your mind
2: Absolutely. Uh, Everything is a little seed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, we have bad seeds planted on our mind just because of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you can listen to the radio or catch something on TV and you're like, gosh, like, that's awful. That's terrible. Why? Why am I even looking at this? Why am I even listening to this? And it's hard in today's world to just because there's so much noise. There's so much noise going on uh and it's it's hard uh to 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 really block out anything that you don't want to see and focus solely on things that you think would benefit you and that's so hard in today's world because we're pe- we're being pulled in so many different directions look these things these cell phones here uh these things are wild uh it's it's yeah. just crazy because uh, we're, we're so addicted to these things now, uh, me included, right. I, 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 my, a buzz goes off and I'm like, Ooh, you know, who messaged me or, 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 you know, what, what am I looking at? You know? Uh, and it's just, it's just so easy to get lost in all of this noise. So I think it's very important for people to really, uh, you know, have a strong, uh, strong connection to what makes them them, right? Their philosophy on, you know, what should I be listening to? What should I be studying? Uh, What should I be watching? Uh, These things are so important that people just kind of go on autopilot and they just take whatever is shown to them. And that's the problem in today's world is that we're being shown garbage. We're being shown Stuff that is detrimental to us as a, as a society over and over and over and over and dumbing us down to the point where there's less and less people who uh, choose not to, to do that and to choose specifically to focus on the things that they want to focus on rather than, uh, you know, what Hollywood wants you to see uh, is, is
1: very, very important in today's world. Yeah. They just desensitize us.
2: Yeah. I can't, I I, I can't make that point strong enough. Mm -hmm. Like it is so important because it's just so easy to be caught up in what we're shown. It's just so easy to take whatever is given to you instead of being really uh, focused and directed toward, you know, a goal, uh, uh, a piece of content that you believe is uh, beneficial right um and that's what the world needs is to to block out all the noise and then focus on certain things that make them happy certain things that really uh could benefit and improve their lives um so yeah uh
3: you know and uh tying this back into the faith thing one of the things that uh really well, first I'll, I'll kind of tie this in so when we're talking about like all of uh, gratifying your your pleasures or just you're your, your indulging yourselves in things that you know aren't good for your long-term well-being and you remember like all these cartoons when you're a little kid like the old angel and the devil on the shoulder and it's like oh like as an adult it's like oh I get it like you have choices in front of you every day and one of the choices is for your future self to be better off and one of the choices is to mm-hmm. satisfy whatever you want right now and That's essentially what, uh, you know, and the biblical Satan represents. It's, it's, you know, this is the thing, like you go through the 10 commandments and there are all these things that would be convenient for you to indulge in, but would detriment your soul, this idea of your soul.
1: You're actually quoting, sorry, let me interrupt you. You're actually quoting Naval Ravikant again. That's funny you bring that up that he said every single self-help book can be reduced down to choosing long-term over short.
3: Yeah, well I mean to tie it back into Austrian economics Mises talked about time preference and mm. you know low time preference society saves for the future and builds for posterity uh where if everybody in the world decided to become a crackhead uh we wouldn't really have nice things around us because we wouldn't have <laughs> savings and capital and entrepreneurship and everything people would just be trying to smoke meth or whatever all day um but ty- so going back uh train of thought um it's okay. okay so to faith oh yeah so when we're talking about tuning out all of the craziness in the world and trying to abstain from these things that are sins and of course in our society people uh think of christians as like oh these people just kind of like blindly follow these old books and they don't really question anything when it's like in reality uh the bible even if you take a secular view of it it's like this is the the nuggets of wisdom that our ancestors have tried to distill and pass down to us it's like this there's like this is the book that we're trying to condense again you don't even have to believe in god to recognize this this is the the wisdom that our ancestors are trying to hand to us they're trying to tell us uh in the form of timeless stories so when you look at like the most famous atheists of our time like somebody like sam harris and if you followed Sam Harris i mean i still listen to him every once in a while because i think it's important to get some uh, opposing views of people that are intelligent and sam harris i mean i don't agree with him about a lot uh, he he has trump derangement syndrome something fierce it's bad mm-hmm. but he's a very intelligent guy and uh you know one of the most famous atheists of our time and he'll he'll rail all day about the simplicity and the blindness of christianity But over the last few years, he's gotten very into Buddhism and meditation. And this is something that Mike and I have talked about uh, recently. And I really think that prayer, if nothing else, uh, is a form of meditation where you are tuning out all of your other things going on in your life, all of your worries and all of your pleasures and everything, you're just kind of silencing them and you're focusing in on these ideas that connect you to this higher power. You're, you're like channeling this, this kind of uh, strength that increases your willpower because at the end of the day, uh, and of course, Sam Harris is somebody who believes in determinism and not free will. And I think that through the practice of meditation or prayer, you can actually increase your ability to exercise your free will. Because if somebody is like a junkie, like just like a meth head or something, it's like they've kind of let this thing take their will from them. And you know, when I, to, to just wrap that up, it's hilarious and ironic to me uh, to see somebody like Sam Harris, not recognize that what he's doing is praying and not realize that this power he's trying to channel this peace that he's trying to to bring into his body, his body and mind is God. And you hear this with atheists (laughs) all the time. They'll talk about the universe. Um, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And, you know, I just believe that the universe is like trying to tell me things, and it's like, bitch, you just <laughs> substituted the word uh, God for universe. That's all right. mm-hmm. it is. And then you have yeah. the you have the audacity to make fun of of you know Christians or whoever else. I mean, they'll never make fun of uh, Muslims. You know, it's like you can tee off on Christians all day, but the minute like anybody else comes up, it's like they just sit there. You know, it's yeah. it's cowardice at its finest.
1: But, when when yeah. Nick brought that up to me, that was something. I was in such agreement immediately with, with prayer being meditation that I was, I was almost embarrassed. I didn't think of it. I was like, how did I never see that before? Um, Cause I think our parents, last I checked, they, they pray the rosary every night. Um, and you know, they get, I've, they get real life effects out of it. It gives them peace of mind and, and there's a tangible effect. Um, and so I've, i I've, so I've never knocked any sort of organized religion. Like I, I see the real life effects on communities on people in hard times. Like it's a beautiful thing. Like I, I don't, i don't subscribe to these people that that just hate organized religion um but when nick said that i was like that that is so true like i can't believe my own brother coined that quote to me and and i'm not seeing that on a billboard somewhere yeah
3: yeah well i think it's i think it's uh pretty well i mean not understood but it's like i remember um in the passion of the christ it's like it shows uh and i i watched that movie once when it came out i was in fourth grade and I was terrified. There's a scene where uh, Mel Gibson had to add his own Hollywood flair, so it's like while Jesus is being whipped, uh Satan is like stalking him, and Satan is holding uh, uh this child, and then Satan turns and then you see the face of this devil baby, and I remember in the cedars <laughs> you know just losing it because it was it was nonsense Hollywood that they added to it, and it haunted me. I did not sleep that night, and I had school the next day. It messed me up bad uh. But gosh, no, I forgot where I'm going from this, where I'm going with this. So, oh, so the, there's a scene in the Passion of the Christ where, um, the night before, uh, Jesus is brought to the Romans and Pontius Pilate, uh, you know, of course they have the last supper and Jesus is praying in uh, in this garden and he was praying so hard. I don't know if it was like his, his nose was bleeding or something. Um, but he, he was like just exerting himself praying and, and, uh, you know, the same thing when like Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days, uh, it's like what he's doing, I think is shutting out all of the noise of the world. Like he's, he's like, I'm just going to go and isolate myself in the desert and fast. So there's nothing but this, uh, connection to God. Like that's to me, that's what that is. Like when you look at all of these things across different cultures and civilizations, they all have similar methods for, uh, trying to practice their spirituality and one of the things that has come up in like on opposite continents of the world thousands of years apart is there's some form of meditation where it's uh repetitious in nature and you know the the rosary obviously is very repetitious it's like you know you say in our father five hail mary's uh glory be and uh and i think by doing that you get so so into this one thing that all of the noise falls down and tom this is something that i know you and i uh, in this one area in martial arts, it's like when you're on the mat rolling and you're going against a killer that's trying to rip your arm off or, you know, break it behind your back. The only thing in the world you're thinking about in that moment, you don't, you're not thinking of any bills or any like stuff at your house you yet. Yeah. Right it's like, oh no, there's a, a giant, well trained ninja that's trying to break <laughs> my arm off. And my only concern in my life is how do I make sure this grip stays here so my arm doesn't get broken? And in doing that it's like especially because you get like the runner's high the endorphins of getting your heart rate up and everything so after jujitsu you feel great from that but it's not just a hard workout it's like this mental clarity too where it's like not only do I have this runner's high and all all these endorphins but also I kind of shut out the noise of everything for like an hour you know and you walk out of there and you feel like you just took like a you had like a three-day weekend it's like Oh, that, was, that was refreshing. I right, mean, so I'm sure people get that from other activities too. So
1: I'm kind of curious at this point uh, if the listeners have been more sold on infinite banking, jujitsu, or God. <laughs> well, well, I mean, hopefully all three, right? Yeah. <laughs> they all three want to play happy
3: an, an important
2: role in my life.
1: Yeah, I love it. Um yeah, we're, we're running a little past an hour now. Anything you guys want to close on or uh Tom, any plugs you want to get in as far as uh work or it's up to you what you wanna put out there.
2: Uh sure. Uh anyone can reach me uh at Tom at Blackcastleprop dot com. Um or or uh just hit me up on Facebook, Thomas Holder, Stronghold Financial Group. Uh yeah, that's that's my plugs, my my timeless
1: plugs. Cool. Well, Tom, thanks again so, for joining today.
3: Yeah, and uh, okay, so we can we can cut it right there and then splice this if you want, but do you have like oh. 10 more minutes, Tom, or less than that even? Oh,
1: sure, we don't yeah. have to cut it. I can, so I can cut it and put that to the end. It's
3: okay, good. so cool. Anyway, um, Tom, so this is a little sneak peek for our listeners. Tomorrow, we're talking to Pete Canonez uh, of Freeman Beyond the Wall podcast, and he's interviewed a lot of really big names. And one of the uh, things he's brought up uh, and I'd heard on other podcasts is the Unabomber manifesto, Ted Kaczynski. Have you ever gotten into going down that rabbit hole, Tom?
2: I have not. No, no. Okay.
3: It's, it's deep. And uh, we're going to talk about it tomorrow at length with Pete. And uh, basically the Unabomber was this guy that was an MK ultra uh, patient. The CIA had experimented on him. I'm not sure if it was LSD or what they did to him, but the guy was a genius had like an off the charts IQ. He was a math professor and he was, had this, uh, this vendetta against technology. So he, he thought that technology was going to enslave mankind. And he was thinking this back in like the 70s. And uh, so he decided to mail some bombs to some self-professed uh, technocrats. Uh, so the guy was off of his rocker. Of course, the, the CIA got a hold of him and he was part of MK Ultra. So, right. not, of course, not defending any of the violence, but he wrote a manifesto in 1995 Um, where he talks about his concerns of technology and where it's uh, taking mankind. Uh, So if you haven't gotten into it, maybe that's a conversation for another time Uh, for the listeners. That's just a little preview. And I think it's going to be a really good conversation, but I highly suggest you, uh, you look up his, I'll send you the link on YouTube. You can listen to a three hour transcript of it. It's I'm a, incredible.
1: I'm a little concerned of, uh, how often Ted Kaczynski has come up on my first five podcasts that we're probably gonna be on a list. Here.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. We're, we're already all three of us. Well, maybe not Tom, Tom, Tom is, uh, you know, I think he's much more measured, but yeah, Mike and I are definitely on some lists, you know, but and I can also nothing. Can, he did. Can we expect, I have brought this up to Tom before, but Tom, is there any chance we could see you run for office one day? Any chance at all? Give me some hope. Uh yeah. All right.
1: Yeah, possibly. All right, that's all we need. I'll be your <laughs> first campaign donation, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well awesome. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, guys. Again. I don't know. I,
2: I, I really respect both you guys and uh I really love what you're doing here. Uh we need more people that think like you uh to 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 open their mouths. Uh maybe you know, force your way into to some people's minds, because uh, if, if, if you don't, mm, it might not happen. Right. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, you know, and it's, and it's fine to interrupt someone Saturday. It's fine to interrupt someone Sunday. It's fine to, uh, you know, put yourself in front of people that might not necessarily want, want to hear what you have to say and make them hear it anyways. Uh, because, uh, what you have to bring to the table, I think is very, uh, very important. And and it's, and it's very serious. And, uh, you know, the more people that do that, uh, coming from a good heart and from a, from a good message standpoint is we need more people like you guys. And I want to thank you guys for having me on today. And, uh, I look forward to maybe being a guest again and, um, Oh, for um,
3: sure. Anytime. Yeah,
2: and I, I definitely am going to follow you guys. Uh, uh, I, I listened to your uh, Scott Horton episode, which was fantastic. Uh, if anybody, if any of your listeners hasn't heard that episode, to, to go back, find that episode and, and, and watch it and listen to it and, and watch it. It was fantastic. And I thank you guys for that. Well,
1: oh, thank you, Tom. That's a, that's a hell of a compliment. I really appreciate that. So you're welcome yeah, back like, Anytime.
2: Like All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks.